podcast one production. Hi, this is Charles Fairley. Welcome back to Unsung Business Heroes, where we talk to small business owners that have got a lot to contribute. Today, we're going to hear from Dominique Grubisa, who runs the DG Institute, helping people learn more about property and protecting it legally. Dominic started out life as a barrister, then went into property and made millions of dollars, but turned around and lost it all straight away and learned a lot of lessons along the way. Now she's fighting back and building a great business, so there's lots to learn from Dominique, so sit back and have a listen. So I'm a lawyer by trade. I started off as a solicitor in 1994 and in 1996 I went to the bar not to get drunk or anything, (laughs) to be a barrister. So from there, I was just going it alone. So barristers are sole traders. You're just a gun for hire and you do your own thing. So I didn't really know anything about leadership or sales or business or anything. I was just very, very focused. And I have a saying, focus, stands for follow one course until successful. So I was just full on focus, like, holding a magnifying glass really, really still, rays of the sun are going to converge and start a fire. So I was the best barrister I could be and shot my way to the top of my game. And um, from there, um, I reached a glass ceiling, not from being a woman or anything, just because I was trading time for money and there were only so many hours in the day. I was working 18 hour days and um, just couldn't go any further. And that's when I went across to property because property, I could leverage other people's time, other people's money, and we did really well in property. So my husband and I got into small developments and just started working our way up. And then the global financial crisis hit and we lost absolutely everything. So Um, we went... 2008? Around then, yeah, we went from millions of dollars in wealth to millions of dollars in debt overnight. And at first that was fight or flight, just survival tactics were very much reactionary. Mm. So we had to just liquidate move in with my parents-in-law so rock bottom for us we were literally homeless and I beat myself up massively from there because you were so successful and proud and your parents must have been really proud of what you'd achieved in in your early years as a barrister and goodness it was a big turnaround for you yeah how did you feel about it I just felt like a complete failure. So I felt I'd failed on all levels, as a wife, as a mother, as a businesswoman, as an entrepreneur. I just felt so totally disgraced. Of course, because you really wanted to be the best barrister, as you said. But what was driving you at that time in the early days? What was making you want to be the best in, in what you're doing? What do you think was underlying that? I wanted to pay back everyone who'd been mean to me. So <laughs> I, really? I decided to be a solicitor. Um, as a result of not becoming an actress. So my Ah, burning ambition from school was to be an actress and... So who was mean to you? People that rejected you or...? Yes, I have a motto, um, start at the top and work your way down. Never ever try and beat your way up from the bottom. So for me, all I wanted to do was be an actress. I went straight out of school and I auditioned for NIDA, National Institute of Dramatic Arts. So very, very competitive, but I thought, 
I'm just going to focus. They've got an audition process, very yeah. systemised. You have to do a Shakespeare piece, a comedy piece and a drama piece. So I just focused on mm. those pieces, studied them till I was word perfect. Oh. And then when I did my audition, got to be honest, I totally nailed it. I was just sure. magnificent. And sure. I thought, okay, we're done and dusted here. And the director of NIDA came out and he said, we've made our decision, many are called, few are chosen. And if you didn't get chosen, you're all going to come to me and say, what did I do wrong? He said, there's no wrong or right here at NIDA. He said, there's just a certain je ne sais quoi, right. um, which is French for I don't know what. Sure. And he said, there's a certain star quality that just shines out of some people. You either have it or you don't. And I just remember looking at the girl next to me thinking, oh, you poor pet, he's talking about you. And <laughs> um, ultimately she got into NIDA, that girl. And yeah. that girl, she was a skinny girl with tie-dyed hippie clothes and greasy lank hair. And she stuffed up her Shakespeare lines. That was Kate Blanchett. Really? Yeah, so I was wow. really, really angry because I thought I was better than her yeah. and then she's out there now living my life. Yes. And so I went back to the drawing board and I thought, don't give me je ne sais quoi yeah. and greys. I just want black and white. Like I, I studied, I did my audition pieces, I didn't stuff up my lines. So yeah. I went the other way and I went to law because it's a clear body of rules and regulations. And I thought, okay, all I have to do now is reverse engineer it because there was a show on telly at the time called LA Law. Yes. And so they did litigation and I thought, well, it's not acting, but it's kind of acting, you know, there's a judge, mm -hmm. there's a jury, you yep. do a presentation, you talk, people listen. And so I decided, start at the top, I want to be a top litigator. So who are the firms that do that? What degree do you have to have? What marks, what subjects do you have to do to get those jobs with those firms? Working my way backwards then, I went through Sydney University, came out the other end doing everything right, ticking all the boxes. And it was the early 1990s. So it was the recession we had to have and you couldn't get a job for love or money, but some people did. And what annoyed me even more was, you know, some of those were people who'd failed subjects, but their dad was a judge and there was just no rhyme or reason. It was an old boys network. Yes. So I ended up taking a job in debt collection as a solicitor. So I did day in, day out. All I did was debt recovery, bankruptcy work on repossessed motor vehicles, mm. just hundreds and hundreds of production line cases, just shaking people down for money, $5,000, $10,000 shortfall on wow. a car. You have to be pretty tough to do that. I hated it. So after two years of doing that, I just slapped myself around the face and said, what are you doing, woman? Whatever you want in life, you've got to start at the top. Yeah. And to me, paying back everyone who'd been mean to me in the system, not giving me the acting job or the solicitor job, I thought one better than all that is a barrister because they're like a gun for hire. Yeah. And um, they, it's like, it's kind of like a GP and a specialist. Um, the solicitors are like the GP if they can fix the client's matter if it was a small case and they can give them a prescription, great. If it's more serious and they need a specialised litigator, they brief a barrister. But I didn't have anything that 
the system, so you needed to be a barrister. But by now I had a healthy disrespect for the system, firstly. And secondly, I had a gold Law Society MasterCard. So when you graduate law, um, they give you a MasterCard and it was kind of like, you'll be rich one day as a lawyer, here's some credit, knock yourself out. And this thing had a $10,000 limit. So... um, I thought it was a sign from the universe because all of the gear to be a barrister was $10,000. So wigs are horsehair, robes are silk. I whacked it all on the card and I had all the drag then and I looked the part. (laughs) So I I didn't have any work, um, but what I did have was time. So I just used to, I thought if I wear all my gear and I'm in court every day, like parading up and down Mm -hmm. Phillip Street um, in my gear. People are going to see me and they're going to say, who is that girl? She's in court every day. She's brief. People are giving her work. She must be really good. Mm -hmm. We'll brief her as well. Didn't work. So I used to sit all suited and booted in the back of the courtrooms and I'd watch the really good guys at their craft. So the top silks, the QCs, senior counsel. And I just soaked it all up. I learned by osmosis. And Mm. if they'd throw me a bone, I'd take it. If I had to work eight hours and I could only charge for one when I was allowed to charge, I'd do it. If I could work for free and learn, I'd do it. And that was the blood, sweat and tears, slowly but surely, just holding my magnifying glass really, really still and focusing Mm -hmm. on the one thing that I wanted. The rays of the sun converged and I shot up to the top of my game. But no matter how much I could raise my hourly rate or my daily brief fee, no matter how good I got, I was always going to be shackled to time, which is the one finite resource that we all have. So I could never, ever hit it out of the park or have exponential growth. So that's when I switched across to property. Um, What year would that have been roughly? That would have been uh, late 90s mm-hmm. um, and early 2000s. And banks were lending in those days. Um, so we, you, they were throwing money at you. And sure. my husband and I did really well in property. And we'd never seen a bad market. And we thought, this is great. All you have to do is buy and prices just only ever go up. And then you get more equity and you pull more money out and you buy more and more and more. And this is just a dream come through. Are you into residential or industrial or what sort of property? Residential property, yes. Yep. Single dwellings or flats or? Everything. Everything we could get our hands on. So yeah, we started, start small, consolidate, grow. So started with units and then moved into homes, then developments and everything was fine until... Um, the GFC? The, well, yeah, the, the global financial crisis really magnified. Leverage is great for magnifying profits, but it's also great for, um, unfortunately, it magnifies your losses and that's when things unraveled for us so yeah at rock bottom um we were homeless we had three small children and I felt so incredibly guilty because I was the one with pedal to the metal who'd been just corralling everyone Mm. and um I was driving recklessly obviously I drove us all off a cliff however um, there's just only so long that you can sit around in sure. your pyjamas all day crying in your mother-in-law's lounge room. Yes. I just had to do something else. And that's when I realised I, I adopted a paradigm shift and I took a glass half full approach. I thought it is what it is. It took me 20 odd years to build up millions in wealth. In the blinking of an eye, I'm millions in debt mm. and lost all my assets, my wealth, 
my pride, my dignity, self-esteem, standing in the community, all of that can be taken from me. My friends like rats from a sinking ship, but there's one thing that no one could ever take from me, mm. and that was my knowledge. Sure. Um, and lawyers say, they have a saying, financially dead men don't tell tales. And what they meant by that is, if you don't have money, you can't access the legal justice system. There's massive barriers to access to mm. having your day in court, having your story told, and having it see the light of day. If you can't pay an expert who speaks the language and who understands it and can be your voice, then it's never going to happen. Mm. And it's probably quite rare for someone to reach the level of legal heights and knowledge that I had to fail as spectacularly as I did. So um, there are just no high-priced experts in the legal game who focus solely on helping people in debt. So I was one of the first people in Australia who had that laser focus, who held my had motivation to hold my magnifying glass really, really still over a very narrow mm. but very deep area of the law, and that is helping people in debt. Yes. Um, no one else had done that because there's no money in it. For me, it was something more powerful than money motivating me, probably the most powerful motivator. You can have self-interest. So I held a magnifying glass still there and I was able just from sheer knowledge and focus to use the system and tread water and negotiate my way through it back to ground zero without going bankrupt. What was behind that accumulation of knowledge do you think? For me was the reason that I was so passionate about applying the knowledge was um, I wanted to get back to where I was before. So that was probably my burning ambition. I'd spent so much time getting to that certain level and I was initially equating time to money. So it took me 20 years to make this much, so I need another 20 years, but that's too old and so I have to do it quicker. And so I was applying the knowledge, um, but um, one of my mentors once told me, you can never move away from something, you can only move towards something. So you can't say I need to get out of debt, I need to get away from my nine to five job, I hate doing this, because you're just focusing on the negative. And your brain doesn't understand the difference between positive and negative. Your brain, mm -hmm. if you're focusing on what's not working, it's always going to be that way. So um, I was very, very clear on what I wanted and I needed, maybe it was my pride, maybe it was my guilt, whatever it was, I needed to be where I would have been but for what had happened and I needed to get that quickly. Maybe it was an ambition just to put a Band-Aid over the past and everything had gone wrong, that had gone wrong. But I was very, very clear about the amount of wealth that I wanted to build and where I needed to get and the period of time to get there. And I think that was the ingredient to success, being really, really focused on what you want and very clear about it. Because we've got a thing in our head called the reticular activating system. So it's the brain's filter for processing a whole lot of information. And 
randomly, if we just let all this data come into our head, there's like so much in any given sure. second information. If we don't, um, if we don't calibrate what we're looking for, just by default, our brain picks up stuff. So if you've ever bought a car and we bought a car once, we never had that brand, that model, that colour, just chose it. Once I drove it out of the car yard, I felt like the whole world was copying me because every other car on the road was the same sure. as mine. They obviously weren't. It's just that it wasn't relevant to me. So our brain picks up stuff that's relevant to us at the time. Sure. And that's why at an airport you can hear your flight called amongst all the other data that's there or if they call your name on a loudspeaker. Um, that's our reticular activating system picking that up. So what I did was I set my goal, this is what I have to do. And it seemed like magic. The opportunities came to me. Mm. Um, so... We're doing normal things that you do without a goal um, is nothing. So for sure. me, um, a catalyst for something was I was watching A Current Affair one night if I was dwelling in my own depression and what I didn't want, I'd be sitting there listening to the hard luck stories of people in debt and people who were ripped off and blah, blah, blah. And instead, um, watching A Current Affair going, how can I get to this goal? I thought, Lots of people watch this. Lots of people are in debt. I've got knowledge about debt. How can I then share that knowledge and reach thousands of people? And my goal was just to get there. So that idea, current affair, that I wouldn't normally focus on, I just got really strategic. I wrote to a current affair and I said, I will help someone live in debt. Let me just prove myself. And they rang up and I did. I got on national television and I got someone's debt from, he was paying out $20,000 a month in shortfall on mm. credit cards, just struggling to come up with $20,000 a month. And I worked with him live and we got it down to $640 a Fantastic. month. So Fantastic. from there I had thousands of people contacting yeah. me and that's how I got up and running with yeah. doing what I'm doing. But it sure. was definitely setting the goal and the focus and then the opportunities just brought themselves to me. That's what it seemed like. Sure. That's all stuff in your head and in your brain. You are talking about the RSA and what have you? Yes. Go down 12 inches into your heart and tell me why you did it. What was, the, what was driving you and what was your purpose, do you think? My family. My parents, um, I knew, believed in me regardless and it was more my husband and my children. I felt I'd let them down because I was the risk taker, I was the driver and I took too many risks and they were all paying the price. So in the darkest days, it was, I had kids in kindergarten, preschool, I used to have to drop them off at the gate because I didn't want to walk past the bookkeeper and I strategically I knew she comes every Tuesday and Thursday so I know wow. that she's going to come and chase me for money and if she did, I was commando rolling out of there and if she was chasing me saying oh, well, you haven't paid, I'd be like oh, didn't Kevin pay? I thought he paid. Oh, well you know, I just and I, I just had to keep, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul and sure. um, not a nice thing to be doing so you talk a lot about mentoring and, and helping people, but with the audience and people that you're helping, what's the main characteristic that you see across them in, in the, the people that you're currently talking to? What, what would you say identified them to you? I'm very fortunate because we've got thousands of students. It, gets, it gives me a bird's eye perspective of um, ingredients for success and people who hit it out of the park and then people who are just the also-rans. Um, and if I had to distill it down to a lowest common denominator, it's probably not what you think. So it's not power, it's not money. Most people think you need money to make money. It's not even knowledge, even though I've talked about knowledge. 
I'd say what it is, the one thing that distinguishes people is um, how hungry they are. For me, I was so hungry because I'd hit rock bottom. If you don't hit rock bottom, you stay in your comfort zone and your comfort zone is your wealth zone. So to get out of your comfort zone, and that is the status quo, and we're wired to revert to the status quo. So if you think about it, we're the survivors of the cavemen. Our ancestors were survivors. Um, So naturally, it's in our DNA to be risk averse because they saw the other ones die and get picked off by lions. So they were risk averse. We tend to be risk averse then. And um, it's really hard to get out of a comfort zone. Um, And it's the the odds are stacked against you. You kind of need what I call launch velocity. And it is like launching a rocket. You have to have something to be able to push you towards what you need to go to. And um, that's the best thing to do is and the people who succeed and and what we teach in the mentoring program is set your what first get very very clear about what it is that you want because you can't move away from something you've got to move towards something and once you've set that that is your unshakable goal your reticular activating system will bring you the how most people get derailed by the how so they never ever break launch velocity because they're there saying, well, I don't have the money and I don't have the time and they, they're focusing on that and they can't see the how. It's a bit like GPS. You put in the coordinates of where you need to go, get very clear about where it is and what it is and you know that there may be detours in the road. You know that um, there'll be roadblocks. It doesn't matter. Most people think success looks A to B. It's just linear. It's actually all over the place. But if you can calibrate and keep coming back on course to get to B, you'll eventually get there. And I think the other advantage of having a cross-section of thousands of students was I was seeing across the board that different people got different results from their various experts and professionals. So, um, and I knew in in the legal field, there's good lawyers, bad lawyers, in between lawyers, there's everything is on a spectrum. So I was able to see, look, this guy with probably worse financials got knocked back for a loan from this lender. And this guy, um, you know, who who never should have got approved, got approved or whatever it was, I could see hmm. different things achieving different results. So this guy must have had a much better broker than this guy. So then it became my mission because I was seeing thousands of people with different accounting advice, different mortgage broking advice, different financial planning and I then wanted to focus on building with the institute the best possible service so people could have a one-stop shop with everyone they needed in their corner and so that's how we've reached our trajectory of growth is we've started up an accounting arm a financial planning arm a finance mortgage broking arm so it's not just education it's the right professionals with the right mindset to help the community of like-minded people on their journey towards wealth. And it's never ever arriving there because it's not a journey success. It's not a destination, it's a journey. So once you get where you think you want it to be, you can raise the bar and constantly go further. It's constant growth. Fantastic. I hope you enjoyed our chat and got some really great tips, both for business and for life. Don't forget to have a look at unsungbusinessheroes.com.au and check out all our videos on YouTube. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. All these stories are available in our second book, 
Unsung Business Heroes, which is available right now. And if you'd like to get a free notification every time there's a new Unsung Business Heroes episode, just hit the subscribe button. Unsung Business Heroes was presented by me, Charles Fairley, in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search for Unsung Business Heroes on iTunes. <laughs>